thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. The first chapter, this is our third week studying this wonderful epistle of Paul. I was curious, among the world's view of people of influence, I found the site and it said at the top of the list, and I was pleasantly surprised, Jesus was at the top of the list, where he belongs, obviously. Second was Mohammed. After Mohammed, there was Mahatma Gandhi, and he was followed by Buddha, and Buddha was followed by Albert Einstein. Einstein was followed by Martin Luther King Jr. I was relieved we got another man who knows and loves the Lord in that group. And then after that, there was mention of the Apostle Paul. He was an influential man. He would never have been known, however, had he not met Jesus Christ. He was a man who was on a collision course with destiny, and he did not know it. Not just any common destiny, but one which would be full of great joy, but also filled with a lot of opposition. You may recall that Paul was a man who was the dispenser of opposition to the fledgling church. It was he who was standing by when Stephen was stoned to death because he had offended the intelligentsia of Judaism when he came before them. But Paul had a radical rearrangement of his person, didn't he? And that's why he became a man who made a difference still is making a difference. The secret to that was, of course, the Holy Spirit. We read from chapter 9 of Acts that after Ananias went to a place on the street called Straight in Damascus, he obeyed Jesus. Jesus had told Ananias to go there and meet this man, Saul, that was his Hebrew name. We've come to know him as Paul. That was his Greek name. And in the process, we saw God remove the scales from his eyes so he could see and could be the man God called him to be. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, this is the way it begins. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, the word bondservant means slave, called as an apostle to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The thing which got Paul in so much hot water was he was a man who declared without shame, without fear, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that was God's gospel. If you go back and think about the way in which Jesus himself was under attack. Where did Paul's attack come from? It would come from none other than the devil himself. 
because he knew what he was up against with Paul. He figured out if he could sabotage Paul on the front end in some way, and the way he wanted to sabotage him was to draw attention to the gospel that he preached and to begin to work in the Galatian churches to let them know that this gospel was not from God. We know it was God's, but there was a whole group of people. They're known as Judaizers. They were people who would assent to the gospel that Christ did die for our sins, that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. But they added to the gospel. They said, you can believe all that and still not be saved. Because unless you are circumcised, if you're a male, unless you are circumcised, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, the devil worked to do away with Jesus. We know that. At Bethlehem, the slaughter of the innocents at the order of Herod the Great, who was very insecure when he received the Magi, saying that the king of the Jews had been born. And then Jesus, would, when he began his public ministry, you remember this, I'm sure, the first place that he opened the scroll on the Sabbath, he was given the opportunity to expound on the reading of the days from the book of Isaiah and how after he talked for a while, the people became enraged after initially being impressed and the enraging of their spirit had to do with the fact that Jesus had made allusion to a Gentile named Naaman and an unnamed Syrian widow as being people who were in God's family. What did they do with Jesus? They took him to the brow, the cliff, if you will, upon which the village of Nazareth sat, and they were ready to throw him over. And that would be an indication they believed he was blaspheming God. One of the ways that people were stoned, when we normally think about stoning, we think about someone picking up a rock, not someone, it would always be a gang of people, picking up rocks and throwing at the one who was being stoned for blaspheming the name of God. Well, there was another way. The way that was exercised in Nazareth was taking someone to this cliff and pushing them off, and they would be stoned because they were going to fall a long way and would die when the impact would, be occurred, would occur on those rocks. Well, Jesus was not the only one. Paul was too, and we see this in the book of Galatians where the false teachers were saying, Paul is not preaching the gospel correctly. Well, that was not the case. They were the ones who were interlopers, weren't they? So let's, with that as a background, pick up where we left off last week at verse 11. And we're going to begin by considering the fact of the origin of Paul's gospel. He makes a defense of his gospel. And here we see it in verse 11. He talks about where did it come from? In verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me, and then he gives some statements. He gives three statements about the gospel that he proclaimed. It's not according to man. What he's simply saying is, I didn't listen to people, and from that, 
form the gospel which I preach. He goes on to say, for I neither received it from man. This is an extension of what he said, but it's a little bit different. And the idea here would be that maybe he consulted the apostles and listened to what they said the gospel was. And by the way, there was no contradiction between the 11 apostles apostles that Paul joined to make 12. But it was something that was emphasizing an, an outreach to the Gentiles as well. And so we see that here. I neither received it from man. He didn't get it according to men, nor did he receive it from men. Here's the third negative way in which he describes the origin of his gospel. Nor was I taught it. Most of the time when people get prepared for the work that God's given them to do in proclaiming the gospel, teaching about Jesus, what they do, they get trained by someone else Another way of saying it, they are discipled by someone else who is more involved and has some experience that can be passed on to them. Things are taught. Being a Jew, Paul was one who knew the importance of attaching himself to someone who could really disciple him. This is before he came to know Jesus. And we know later in the book of Acts, the 22nd chapter, he actually names the one who was his rabbi. Gamaliel was his name. And Gamaliel was well known. He was the leading, perhaps, the leading man in the area of being a rabbi. His grandfather was Hillel. Hillel was considered Hillel the Great, he was held in the highest esteem among all of Judaism. This is what these great rabbis would do. They would read the Torah, the law of God, which would have included Moses' writings. But in addition to that, they would read the rest of the Old Testament and they would write their own commentary on it. That is to say, they would write down their interpretation of Moses and the prophets. And that would become the curriculum for a person like Saul, who was apprenticed, as it were, to the rabbi Gamaliel. He had amassed an incredible amount of information. He knew the word of God, but also he was astute in the teachings of Gamaliel. But what he's wanting to communicate here. What I'm telling you is not from the apostles. It is not through men. It is not through Gamaliel either. He goes on to say what it is after having said what it's not. Look at the last part, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, verse 12. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I always am learning more things about Jesus' conversion when I read the book of Acts and we see how he had a document in his hand. He had gone before the chief priest. That would have been Annas at the time. 
He went before the chief priest of Israel. He got permission to go to Damascus because he had heard this poison gospel of Jesus Christ had made its way there. And he was going to root out all those people who were part of what is called in the book of Acts, we read about it, the way. The church had that name as it began, the way. Does that ring a bell? Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was and remains the only way to come to know God. If you're here today and you're new to this teaching, understand that Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is something that would take too long to unfold in entirety today. But just let me remind you that Jesus Christ, God become man, living a perfect life, fulfilling the law of God to the nth degree. And it was he who gave his life for us. He laid down his life for us so that we might know God the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It was his work on the cross that makes it possible for you and me to be saved because he became sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And how is that done? We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we emphasize in our thinking the first aspect of His being. He is the Lord. The order is correct. He is the King of kings and we yield ourselves to Him. He is our Savior. And he was buried and raised again on the third day so that when we embrace what Robbie gave witness to just a while ago, as he opened his heart to Jesus Christ, and most of us here perhaps have done that, what happened? Christ came in and took control of our lives and lives there to this moment. That was true for Paul. It was through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This was undoubtedly much like the revelation that the prophets of the Old Testament received from the Lord. God would speak to them. They in turn would write what God said down or just memorize it. People had incredible capacity in that culture for memorization and they would take it and the Holy Spirit would give them the opportunity to talk to the people of God, Israel and Judah, about what that meant to them. Paul had that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke to him. He did it on the road to Damascus, didn't he? What did he say? He called him out, Saul, Saul. Have you noticed in the Bible that when God speaks to people, especially in the Old Testament, He speaks to them twice. I'm not talking about two separate occasions. I'm talking about in addressing them like the boy Samuel. Remember, he had been dropped off at the tabernacle with Eli, the chief priest, by his mother, Hannah. 
because she'd made a promise. If you will open my womb and give me a child, then I will bring this child after I'm through weaning him to Shiloh where the tabernacle was and he will be yours. And after this boy was there, we don't know how old he was, probably 10 years old, just rough guess. And he heard his name call, Samuel, Samuel. It was in the night. Everything was quiet in the area where Eli lived. And of course, this boy who was young enough, perhaps to even be his great-grandchild, he came to him. He says, you called. What, what do you want? He said, I didn't call. Go back and lie down. That went on for two or three times. And finally, Eli caught it. He said, it's God who's speaking to you. Just say, Lord your servant is hearing. Samuel, Samuel. Saul, Saul. And there are other illustrations which we could use, but in the interest of time, we know that when God speaks to us like he spoke to this man, Saul, it's unlikely that there'd be a whole bunch of people here who have had the Lord say to you, calling your name twice. But it's possible that that could happen. If he's speaking to you, it may not be his voice. You may hear it through someone else as someone teaches the Bible, preaches the Bible, shares the gospel with you. So this revelation, it's a miracle that God speaks to, through Jesus Christ, speaks to the Apostle Paul, the gospel of God. And what's so unique about the gospel in the emphasis of the gospel is that it's a gospel of grace. Mercy and grace. Mercy is something we all need but don't deserve. Ron spoke about this. I believe it was you, Ron, to introduce our time together today in worship. Thank you for doing that. But grace is unmerited favor. It's God showering us with all those things that are connected to trusting in Jesus Christ. He gives us the faith we need to exercise. He also gives us the power to go forward once we come to Jesus and live the Christian life as we so call it. But this revelation of Jesus Christ was personal and it was incredibly profitable for God's kingdom. Let's move on after having looked at the origin of his gospel, remembering that it didn't come from any other institution. It didn't come out of the fertile mind of this brilliant young man, Paul. It came only from Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the circumstances of the call and conversion. There are two aspects of these circumstances. One has to do with Paul's life before he met Jesus and the second part after he met Jesus. Let's look at verse 13 and 14 for the before part of the circumstances of his conversion. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul's own testimony in another place, in the book of 1 Timothy, makes this statement. He says, I was a persecutor 
and a violent aggressor. I was a curious to understand the one word that's translated in that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, violent aggressor. What I discovered, it's derived from the New Testament language word hubris. That word is the Greek word for excessive pride. And we know it has even come over in its original form. You hear the word hubris, you may not have heard it much, but in some circles it is used. And what does it represent? It's a synonym for what? Pride, audacity, egotism to the max. Paul was driven by his own ego. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before. You might not have had a reason to. The word ego is a direct transliteration from the personal pronoun that we translate I in English. And it's epsilon and then the other two letters, gamma and omega. Ego. Ego. Have you ever stopped to think that the word I is the only one of the pronouns that we use that is capitalized? Have you ever thought about that? That's no accident. Because I am the center of my life before I know Jesus Christ. And you are too. We want our way. That's why we throw temper tantrums. That's why we lie to people to make sure they have a good view of who we are. It's what motivates us in every aspect of our lives. And the Apostle Paul was no different. We actually see it in these two verses, do we not? He says in verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. Let me draw your attention to the word advancing. This word means it was not one advance he was making. His whole modus operandi, his whole purpose in life was to impress people with who he was. He was the center of attention as he wanted it to be. And he was advancing. This word was used to describe a group of people or an individual who was clearing out a forest so that there could be a clear path for those who followed to walk on. So this is the kind of intensity the Apostle Paul brought to his pre-Christian life, the pre-conversion life. He goes on to say in this passage, we see it, he was beyond many of his companions. And some places in Paul's writing, for instance, in the third chapter of Philippians, he goes on to say, and he wrote Philippians later, and he'd had time to reflect on his life before Christ. And he said, I was at the top of my class. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he was number one in Gamaliel's school of theology. And he was riding high. He was making a name for himself. And he says here in the last part of verse 14, before more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He was a traditionalist. Some of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof in Tevye. 
my favorite character. I don't even remember any of the rest of them. It's been 30 years probably since I saw it. But Tevya, he talks, he has a song, Traditions. I'm not going any further than that, okay? <laughs> but he was having a little talk with God and he was not really proud about all the traditions he had. And, but Paul loved the traditions. Jesus' biggest detractors were like Paul, traditionalists to the core. I'm indebted to Bill Hull, a man who has written extensively on church life as it's to be in a local church, no matter where that church meets in the world, no matter what the culture is. And he talks about the difference between tradition and traditionalism among God's people. Paul actually, in his writings, and to the Thessalonians, he speaks about traditions in a positive way. But traditions and traditionalism are different. Mr. Hull writes it this way, Tradition is the living faith of dead men. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living men. And what we're apt to do is really codify and bring our traditionalisms up and let those things determine who we are as individuals and as the people of God. And we need to be careful about that. It was not this matter of traditions that was going to help Paul become one of the most influential people in the history of the world. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ cut across a wide swath of the traditionalism of the people like Paul. But then something happened. Notice in the verses 13 and 14, it's I, 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 I. But there's a radical rearrangement when Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Notice the adjustment He made in His life. It was instantaneous. When He met Christ, He was radically rearranged. He says this about all of us who know Jesus Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That could have been the Apostle Paul's testimony. He did not claim to be perfect. He never reached perfection. He gave up on that when he received Christ. His whole life was devoted to becoming perfect and being more righteous than everyone else. But what happens when you receive Christ? It's such a relief when you understand the gospel of God, that it's He who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light in order that we might proclaim His excellencies in His way of saving us. We are a chosen race. We are a people for His own possession. We are a royal priesthood. Those are just a few of the things that Peter says about us as part of 
God's family in the church of Jesus Christ. But here we see Paul. He said, he set me apart even from my mother's womb. Well, that's a big claim. He was putting himself in the same category of some pretty big heavyweights in the history of God's people. I'll just mention one. Jeremiah, a young man. In fact, he describes himself in Jeremiah 1 as a youth. And what does God say to him? I set you apart even in your mother's womb to be a prophet, the prophet actually, to the nations. That scared Jeremiah greatly. And understandably, the prophet to the nations. And he said, I, I can't speak well. He kind of echoed what Moses had said when Moses encountered God in the burning bush when Moses was 80. Here's a teenager probably. And he said, hey, you got the wrong guy. But God used Jeremiah, didn't he? If you've read the book of Jeremiah, you see how he used him. It was not easy for him. In fact, he probably had as hard a time as any of the prophets. But thank God he was faithful to the end. And Paul was faithful to the end. It pleased God to set Paul apart in his mother's womb. The reason I asked for the reading of Psalm 139 is that the Bible says, David writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this to God. He says, you saw my unformed substance. If it's not formed, is it substance? Probably not. He knew before you were even conceived that he had a plan for you. If that doesn't dignify us, if that doesn't satisfy us as to our value, if that does not stimulate us to want to know what that purpose is, well, you need to come to know Christ and he will put that heart in you. And he goes on to say there, David does, that all the days that were written and ordained for me are written in, my, in your book, Lord. It's, they're written down there. And wow, God had a plan for me today. God has a plan for you if you know Jesus every day. And if life is boring for you, just turn your life over to the Lord. It gets rather exciting. And not exciting like having chill bumps all the time, but exciting in the sense that you know your life can count every day. Because why? Christ lives in you. And he says here in verse 16, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What does it mean when Paul writes to re reveal his son? That's Jesus, of course, in me. I believe Paul details that. And I'm going to hold that answer to that question for the last thing I want to say in a few minutes today. So we see the origin of the gospel was the revelation that God gave him through Jesus. Jesus gave him his assignment. The circumstances before, he was a man on a mission, but it was a mission contradictory to 
the purpose of God for his life. And then he met Christ and he was radically rearranged. Christ came to indwell him. Then Christ gave him the gospel and he ran with it. And he was sharing it with, with others. And you and I wouldn't be here today were it not for the Apostle Paul. He didn't save us, but he's the one who preached the gospel in Europe and all over the region where he lived. And so we owe a great debt to the Lord for doing what he did in Paul and for Paul being responsive to the Lord. Let's look at the last aspect here, the events following his being called and converted. In the middle of verse 16, it says, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. He's hammering this. I didn't get my gospel from an individual or a group of people, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. That's where the apostles were hanging out, the 11 apostles. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Arabia. Not Arabia as we know it. If you look at a map of the Middle East at that time, you can see the area. It was east of Israel, and it was the nation of the Nabataeans. Eratos was the emperor. It was wild and woolly. It's like the wild west of our country. There was no law in most parts. It was just man on man. And some have suggested that when Paul went there to Arabia, he went there to evangelize. Now, I cannot imagine the Apostle Paul not sharing the gospel. But there are others, and you'll look at verse 18, then three years later I went up to Jerusalem. There are those who say that this was for Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles to have a three-year period with Jesus just like the other apostles had. There's nothing that is said about that in the Scripture, but that's a plausible suggestion anyway. What we do know, he was fellowshipping with the Lord, and the Lord was forming a more clear understanding of God's gospel so that when the time came for him to begin to be the missionary in that area, take the gospel, he would be prepared for it. Second event, after Arabia, three years there, and then he goes up to Jerusalem. And why did he go? To be acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter's Hebrew name, and stayed with him 15 days. He is careful to put the length of time that he was with Peter. He wanted his readers to understand that 15 days would not be adequate time for him to assimilate a gospel that was not the gospel of God. The ideas that he received, he wanted to be clear that this gospel was given to him directly through revelation. Verse 19 says, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now this is a little interesting. This is not James, the less or lesser. If you've watched The Chosen, you've seen two James, James, the brother of John, and the other James. By this time, James 
the brother John had been beheaded. He was gone to heaven. It was a different James. This is the half-brother of Jesus, the product of Joseph and Mary's relationship and marriage. Now look at verse 20. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I'm not lying. I've noticed a lot in the last few years, I'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, I'm not lying. And then they'll tell me what they're going to say. And I'm thinking, has he been lying to me all this time? (laughs) The apostle Paul is saying, he wanted to underscore it one more time. I'm telling you the truth. And then there's something we need to note here before going forward. He didn't have enough time. He only met two apostles, Peter and James. And he only had two weeks. And part of the time, if you read elsewhere in the New Testament, he was sharing the gospel, preaching. He went there to get acquainted with these fellow apostles and only met with two of them. Then he goes on a third leg and that was northward to Syria and Cilicia. His hometown, Tarsus, was in the province of Cilicia. Probably went to see some of his folks there. Verse 22 says, And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Judea was the area immediately around Jerusalem. And I don't know what the circumference of that would be, but it was in a radius around These were the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the land that they inherited as their birthright as descendants of Abraham in the south of what we call Israel today. And those people, the churches there, they didn't even know who he was. They couldn't pick him out of a lineup if he were in a lineup to identify him. But verse 23 says, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith. And that's the faith once and for all delivered to the church, probably embodied, certainly embodied in all the teachings of the apostles when you put them together about Jesus, but probably condensed in the Apostles' Creed, which is a good piece of literature. The faith which he once tried to destroy. This was Paul's mission in his own mind. He's got to destroy He just seethed with anger before he came to know Christ to think that these upstart people who were unschooled, uneducated men, the apostles, were leading the people of Israel astray. They were the false teachers, not knowing that he was the one who was not right with the Lord. And then verse 24, I love this. They were glorifying God because of me. Don't you know? when they learned that this man who had been hell-bent, literally, on destroying the church and heard that he had become the champion of the fledgling church, don't you know that elated them? It made them glorify the Lord. We still need to glorify the Lord for Paul. We don't need to in any way make him higher than Jesus, but he was a man who was blazing the trail for you and for me to know Jesus. Now let me come back to what it means, I believe, when it says that the Son of God revealed Himself in Him. How's that work? 
Well, Galatians 2.20 says, I'm quoting from the King James Version. Listen carefully. It says, I am crucified with Christ. This is an autobiographical statement. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not the faith in. That's what the modern translations translate it. They do disservice. It's the faith of. Who lives in you if you know Jesus Christ? Who lives in you? The Holy Spirit. Jesus live in you. And they are there to convey their character. Among what are called the fruit of the Spirit, a little later also in the book of Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It's the word pistos. It's the word that's translated faith. We have the faith of Christ inherent in our lives. We just need to understand the importance of yielding to Him and saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. He says, that's quite all right. I do. And I'm in you. And if you yield your life to me, you will have insight and not simply know how, but you will have the power to live the life that I died so you could have my life in you. That was Paul's testimony. He died to himself in order that Christ might rule in his life and use him. You say, well, that's Paul, Pastor. I know that. But it's for you just as much as it was for Paul to be indwelled by Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. Would you bow your heads a moment? I hope this appeals to your heart. The Gospel. I trust that it does. And it's likely that there is more than one person present in this group today who has been considering a walk with God through Jesus Christ. Or maybe this is all new, but it's rung a bell in your mind. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and his companion, Silas, what must I do to be saved the very simple yet profound answer was given. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Belief is not simply head knowledge. It's a heart decision where you turn your heart over to Jesus Christ, take your hands off of your life and give Him control of it. Lord, Help us to be men and women who surrender all to You. And we will be men and women who will be used by You to glorify You in some of the very ways that the Apostle Paul was. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.